Today on Lawfare Noble. On Tuesday, September 21st, the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee held a hearing on threats to the homeland since 9-11. The committee heard from Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, FBI Director Christopher Wray, and Director of the National Counterterrorism Center Christine Abzade. The hearing discussed a range of issues. We are bringing you the sections most relevant to Lawfare readers and listeners. get to terrorism. On the cyber front, we're now investigating over a hundred different types of ransomware, each with scores of victims. And that's on top of hundreds of other national security and criminal cyber threats we're working against every day. In our violent crime work, we recently arrested over 600 gang members in a single month. That's just one month. Protecting our nation's innovation, we're opening a new China counterintelligence investigation every 12 hours. And every day, we receive thousands of tips into our National Threat Operations Center, many of which involve imminent threats to life requiring swift action. Now, the list goes on and on. I'm not going to have time to discuss most of them before we get started, but I do want to spend a few minutes on terrorism and the challenges facing those protecting against it. Preventing terrorist attacks remains our top priority, both now and for the foreseeable future. Today, the greatest terrorist threat we face here in the U.S. is from what are, in effect, lone actors. Because they act alone and move quickly from radicalization to action, often using easily obtainable weapons against soft targets, these attackers don't leave a lot of dots for investigators to connect, and not a lot of time in which to connect them. We continue to see individuals radicalized here at home by jihadist ideologies espoused by foreign terrorist organizations like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, what we would call homegrown violent extremists. But we're also countering lone domestic violent extremists, radicalized by personalized grievances, ranging from racial and ethnic bias to anti-government, anti-authority sentiment to conspiracy theories. There is no doubt about it, today's threat is different from what it was 20 years ago, and it'll almost certainly continue to change. And to stay in front of it, we've got to adapt too. And that's why Over the last year and a half, the FBI has pushed even more resources to our domestic terrorism investigations. Since the spring of 2020, so the past 16, 18 months or so, we've more than doubled our domestic terrorism caseload from about 1,000 to around 2,700 investigations. And we've surged personnel to match, more than doubling the number of people working that threat from a year before. But we're also surging against threats by foreign terrorist organizations like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Al-Shabaab. Their operatives continue to look for vulnerabilities and have not stopped trying to carry out large-scale attacks against us. And we are certainly watching the evolving situation in Afghanistan. Now, 9-11 was 20 years ago, but For us at the FBI, as I know it does for my colleagues here with me, it represents a danger we focus on every day. 
And make no mistake, the danger is real. Our adversaries are committed, and they're hoping to succeed just once while we're working to bat a 1,000. So we are working with our partners to identify and stop would-be attackers before they act. Just within the past couple of years, we've thwarted potential terrorist attacks in areas like Las Vegas, Tampa, New York, Cleveland, Kansas City, Miami, Pittsburgh, and elsewhere. Now, we're proud of our successes, but we need to stay on the balls of our feet, relentlessly vigilant against the next plot by our adversaries and their next attempts to attack us. Our workforce has been battling the threat of terrorism and every other threat we face right through the teeth of a pandemic and rising danger to their own safety. And I say that because over the past year, we have seen a sharp and deeply disturbing uptick in violence against the law enforcement community. In just the first eight months of this year, 52 law enforcement officers have been feloniously killed on the job. Just put that in context, that's an officer murdered in this country every five days, and already more than it was in all of 2020. And of course, that doesn't even count all those who've died in the line of duty facing the other inherent dangers of the job, much less the scores of agents, officers, analysts, and other dedicated professionals who died from COVID-19. And we will be forever indebted for their bravery and sacrifice and are bound and determined to honor them all through the way we approach our work while we remain focused on our ultimate mission, protecting the American people and upholding the Constitution. So thank you for taking the time for, to hear from me today, and I look forward to your questions. The 26 August suicide bombing by ISIS Khorasan at the International Airport in Kabul, which tragically killed 13 U.S. service members and scores of Afghans, illustrates that foreign terrorist groups continue to place a premium on attacks against the United States. ISIS Corps in Iraq and Syria, in addition to maintaining a strategic interest in conducting attacks in the West, remains committed to its long-term goal of establishing an Islamic caliphate and is fomenting sectarian discord, eroding confidence in governments, and exploiting security gaps to create conditions favorable for seizing territory again after significant losses several years ago. For its part, Al-Qaeda has changed significantly since 9-11. The group and its affiliates and allies have repeatedly demonstrated their ability to adapt to changing CT environments and geopolitical realities. Part of this ad adaptation has included shifting from its core leadership structure in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region to a more geographically dispersed network of affiliates and veteran leaders across Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia. And while years of CT pressure has degraded the Al-Qaeda network, the group and its affiliates remain intent on using individuals with access to the United States to conduct attacks. This was most recently demonstrated by Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and their probable approval of a 2019 attack in Pensacola, Florida, where a Saudi Air Force officer killed three and wounded eight U.S. service members. Now here in the United States, the primary threat in the homeland comes from individuals inspired to violence, either by foreign terrorist groups or other domestic grievances and ideologies. 
US-based homegrown violent extremists, HVEs, who are largely inspired by Al-Qaeda or ISIS, will likely continue to attempt attacks because their personal and ideological grievances, their attraction to foreign terrorist messaging, and their access to weapons and targets. HVEs, they mobilize without specific direction from foreign terrorists, and they act independently and often with few associates, which makes detection and disruption very difficult. Separately, one of the other most pressing threats to the homeland comes from domestic violent extremists, DVEs, and in particular, racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists and militia violent extremists, who often mobilize to violence independent from direction of a formal or centralized organization. Since 2015, the threat from these individuals has increased, and since 2018, we saw DVEs pose the most lethal terrorist threat inside the homeland. We assess that DVEs will continue to pose a heightened threat for years to come, in part because many of the factors that underpin their motivations are likely to endure. Social polarization, negative perceptions about immigration, conspiracy theories promoting violence, distrust of government institutions, and biases against minority groups will likely drive some DVEs to conduct attacks this year. We also remain vigilant against Iran and its agents and proxies, principally Lebanese Hezbollah, and their intent in retaliating in the United States for the January 2020 killing of former IRGC Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani. The threat from Iran also uh, faces us in overseas, and particularly in Iraq, where Iraqi Shia militant groups pose the most immediate threat to US interests. These militants have conducted an increasing number of indirect fire and unmanned aerial systems attacks against US facilities in the past several months with the objective of expelling US forces from the country. Now looking ahead, we will continue to face a diverse range of threats that will play out against the backdrop of complex global trends, including ongoing effects of COVID-19 pandemic, great power competition, and the disruptive effects of a changing climate and rapidly evolving technology. More than 15 years after its establishment, the National Counterterrorism Center is uniquely positioned to lead in this environment, working alongside our partners across the intelligence community and importantly, the FBI and DHS as we move into the next phase of our counterterrorism fight. We will continue to discover, analyze, and warn about ongoing and future threats as part of a broader set of foreign policy challenges that the United States will face in the 21st century. And we will continue to find innovative ways to synthesize, manage, and exploit our unique access to terrorism data from across a spectrum of sources to identify threats that might otherwise go unnoticed. Director Ray, uh, this, this morning it was reported that the FBI held back the digital key necessary to unlock the computers of hundreds of businesses and organizations that were subjects of a Kaseya cyber attack for almost three weeks. Uh, I want to hear why the Bureau would do this. Uh, sharing the key sooner certainly could have potentially avoided millions of dollars uh, in recovery cost. And I understand we need to both support uh, cyber attack victims uh, and bring uh, perpetrators uh, to justice. I understand uh, that uh, dual task that you have, but certainly I think this committee would like to hear your explanation for the Bureau's actions uh, in related to this key. 
Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me start by saying that, as I'm sure you can appreciate, uh, since we're talking about an ongoing investigation, I'm somewhat limited in, in what I can say here. But first, let me say that CASEA, in particular, has been a, a great help to law enforcement uh, and CISA, uh, and they've joined in our response to the threat. And I will say there's no substitute uh, as you and I have discussed previously, uh, for a private sector partnership in this space um, to stop the avalanche of ransomware attacks that we continue to see. We are constantly uh, using technical information that we obtain through our investigations and pushing it out to enable effective defense. And we don't wait for our investigation to be done to do it. But when it comes to the issue of encryption keys or decryption keys, there is a lot of testing and validating that is required to make sure that they're going to actually do what they're supposed to do. Uh, and there's a lot of engineering that's required to develop a tool that required to put, uh, to put the tool to use. Uh, sometimes we have to make calculations about how best to help the most people because maximizing impact is always the goal. And whenever we do that uh, in these joint enabled sequenced operations. We are doing it in conjunction with other government agencies, CISA and others. Uh, we make the decisions as a group, not unilaterally. And these are complex, case-specific decisions uh, designed to create maximum impact. Uh, and that takes time in going against adversaries where we have to marshal resources, not just around the country, but, but all over the world. Said. I, I want to ask my, my first question, if I could, to uh, uh, Mr. Ray, Director Ray. In 2020, the FBI arrested 180 individuals on domestic terrorism-related matters. Of these arrests, 75 were identified as white uh, supremacist extremists. For years now, we've been hearing about the rising threat of racially motivated attacks, specifically attacks carried out by white supremacists. And you may have heard me say before that in order to address a problem, we must understand and address the root causes of that problem. Director Ray and Secretary Mayorkas, why have we seen such a rise in racially and ethically, ethnically motivated extremism and violence in this country in recent years? And what is the root cause and how are we tackling it? Mr. Secretary. Senator Carper, um, uh, let me, if I may, take a moment to answer um, uh, a, a point you made or respond to a point you made. There's important legislation uh, that, is, that is pending that would uh, bestow uh, upon individuals evacuated from Afghanistan, uh, the same benefits uh, that refugees receive, and that would assist um, in their resettlement here in the United States and their integration into our communities. And we're extraordinarily proud and inspired by the unity that we see across uh, the country. We have seen, regrettably, um, over the last several years, uh, Senator, um, a rise in the manifestation of hate. We've seen the propagation of uh, false uh, narratives. We've seen an increase in anti-government uh, sentiments. And uh, we are very watchful of and vigilant in response to any signs of connectivity uh, between those ideologies and acts of violence. That is where our focus is. All right, thank you. Um, Director Ray, please, same question. Root cause, what is it? What right. are we doing about it? Uh, so I think our focus is, of course, on the violence, not on, on the ideology itself. Um, I would say that we, one of the things that we've done uh, about uh, now two years ago is 
create a domestic terrorism hate crimes fusion cell, which was designed to bring together both our domestic terrorism experts as well as our hate crimes experts and try to be try to get ahead of the uh, of the threat and be more proactive in going against the threat. And we're very proud, for example, of the work of that fusion cell in preventing a, uh, an attempted attack on a synagogue uh, outside of Las Vegas, for example. Uh, I will say that a big part of the threat that you're asking about um, is the social media dimension. You know, some of these same people uh, before might have been uh, stewing away in, you know, the basement or the attic, one part of the country, and not communicating with each other. But today, uh, terrorism moves at the speed of social media, and you have the ability of, of lone actors disgruntled in one part of the country to spin up uh, similar like-minded individuals in other parts of the country uh, and urge them into action or inspire them into action. And I think that is a, a huge part of the threat that you're asking about. All right. The administration. Um, now, I want to turn uh, to uh, both Secretary Mayorkas and Director Ray. Um, about uh, the issue of al-Qaeda. Some assessments indicate that al-Qaeda could reconstitute itself and be capable of threatening the U.S. homeland in the next one to two years. So what are the FBI and DHS each doing to detect, investigate, and disrupt possible al-Qaeda attacks on the homeland amid assessments of their resurgence? We'll start with you, Director Ray. Well, I appreciate the question. Certainly, uh it, as we get to the 20th anniversary here now, uh, it's worth remembering that al-Qaeda has not stopped trying to hit us. Uh, for us, the, if there's good news, uh, the good news is that we're in a fundamentally different posture here uh, in terms of the FBI's stance than we were at the time of 9-11. And that starts with our over 200 joint terrorism task forces, which uh, encompass something like 4,500 different uh, federal, state, and local partners. So we are aggressively using those task forces all over the country uh, to engage with sources, uh, follow up with uh, ties between subjects that we have under investigation with uh, individuals overseas, working with our foreign partners uh, to put information together. Uh, we're putting a heavy, heavy focus on community outreach as, um, as the evacuees settle here in the United States. Uh, to both A, try to get in front of any radicalization that could occur while they're here, but also to try to open up the lines of communication uh, to, to make sure that if somebody sees something about someone in those communities, uh, that they'll say something to us about it. Thank you. Secretary Mayorkas. Um, uh, Senator, uh, we continue uh, to screen and vet individuals seeking to arrive uh, in the United States uh, by any uh, means, sea, land, and air. We have not relaxed our vigilance uh, over the years. We speak uh, very frequently about a rise in prominence of certain uh, types of threats, uh, the domestic violent extremists, the homegrown violent extremists. That does not mean that that rise in prominence uh, suggests that we have taken our eye, uh, our focus off the prior iteration that is um, ever present. 
Thank you. Uh, another question for you both. Terrorists and criminals are using cryptocurrency to facilitate their activities. Foreign terrorist organizations have used cryptocurrency to directly solicit donations to their organizations and to launder money through the cover of charities to further their goals. Director Ray and Secretary Mariocas, are the FBI and DHS tracking the use of cryptocurrencies for the financing of terrorism and other homeland security threats? What are you doing to combat the use of cryptocurrencies for terrorist financing? Director? So certainly we are seeing, you're exactly right, cryptocurrency now being used across a wide range of threats, uh, both the ones you mentioned and others. We're seeing it uh, on everything from buying criminal tools like botnets to laundering proceeds, evading sanctions, uh, as you say, raising money for uh, terrorist operations, darknet uh, marketplaces. Um, we are, and of course all of it boils down to making it harder and harder for us to follow and then ideally seize the money. Some of the things that we're doing are we've created a, a virtual currency evolving threat team at headquarters that has our subject matter experts designed to uh, help with training and investigations in all of our field offices. We have a virtual currency response team to assist with that. We are engaged with uh, academia and the expert community looking at new tools, technical tools and techniques. Uh, but it is becoming, I think, a phenomenon that uh, permeates pretty much every program we have, and I don't expect that uh, to change. In fact, if anything, I expect it to increase. Thank you. And just briefly, Secretary Mayorkas. Um, uh, the director and I have spoken about this very issue a number of times. Uh, Senator, it is um, a concern of us, uh, of ours, an increasing concern. Uh, we in the uh, Department of Homeland Security, our United States Secret Service, conducts investigations alongside with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And uh, just a few weeks ago, I met with CEOs of major financial institutions to see what more we can do to address this challenge. I believe it is identified as such, Senator. Sure. So earlier, earlier this month, the Taliban announced um, the uh, senior leadership. One notable appointment was Sir Hadden Haghani to be Afghan's uh, interior minister. He's on, the, he's on the FBI's most wanted list and designated as a global terrorist due to his role in the January 2008 attack on a hotel in Kabul that killed six people, including an American citizen. Director Ray, is, is there still a $10 million reward for uh, information leading to the arrest of Haqqani? To my knowledge, uh, he remains on the list and the uh, reward is still out there. Okay. All right. Um, do each of you agree that it seems to be counterintuitive that uh, it would be against national security interests for somebody like that to be in senior leadership of, of the Taliban? We all agree with that, right? Yes. Yep. And we've had conflicting uh, testimony about how many people are left there. We've had someone, uh, Secretary Blinken has said 100 citizens to 200. We've had earlier that it could be as much as uh, 9,000. We don't know exactly what it is. First off, were, you, were two of you disappointed when our military came home without all the American citizens? Uh, if I may, uh, uh, Senator, um, the United States government's enduring commitment is to bring every United States citizen uh, that wants to return to the United States to bring them home. That is our enduring and continuing commitment. Um, but were you disappointed that it didn't happen before we brought our military home? Our goal was to return every willing American citizen home, and of course we were disappointed if we were not able uh, to accomplish that, but we have not stopped in our efforts. Okay. 
Dr. Ray. Uh, well, certainly, I'm, uh, I would be disappointed if we don't do right by the, um, all those Afghans uh, who worked so uh, bravely side by side with us over the past 20 years. Uh, and that's why we're all working so hard, as Secretary Mayorkas said, to try to make sure that we get the right people, underline the right people, uh, out uh, where they need, can be brought to safety. I, I do want to uh, clarify my answer to an earlier question. I've been handed a note that, that while the reward, this is on the uh, Haqqani question, yeah. that while the reward is, is definitely still out there, that I, as I understand it, uh, Haqqani may no longer be on the top 10 most wanted terrorists. Well, he's still on the list. But, but, he's, uh, but still to have the reward is still, is still posted. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to each of you for the work that you do to uh, help keep our homeland uh, safe. Um, uh, Director Ray, are the, are the threats from um, uh, the domestic violent extremists rising? And, and if they are, are they rising based on uh, those that are, if you will, inspired from foreign groups? Or are they rising from those that are inspired by domestic groups? Or, uh, and I don't know whether you distinguish that way, but, but is, is it on the right? My, my impression is that it's substantially increasing, but largely domestic. But that may not be the case. So are the threats greater from these individuals and by source, uh, domestic or international? So we would, uh, when it comes to sort of homeland-based terrorist threats, we have two buckets, really, that we primarily uh, focus on as the highest priority right now. What we call homegrown violent extremists, which is a reference to people here radicalized by foreign terrorist uh, organizations and ideologies. And then domestic violent extremists who are radicalized more by everything from racial animus all the way over to anti-government, anti-authority. Right. Uh, the first bucket, the homegrown violent extremists, has been humming along fairly consistently at about 1,000 investigations, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, over the last few years. Uh, the domestic violent extremist bucket has been going up quite significantly over the last few years, which is why we're now at 2,700 domestic terrorism investigations, when if you went back two and a half years ago, we were probably at more about 1,000. So it's been a really significant jump there. We are concerned that with developments in Afghanistan, among other things, that there will be more inspiration to the first bucket as well. So I think we anticipate, unfortunately, growth in both categories as we look ahead over the next couple of years. Yeah, that is, that is daunting. Um, and we may get a chance to talk about why you might believe that, that the, uh, the latter group, the, the homegrown domestic-inspired uh, uh, violent extremists, is, is rising. Uh, Secretary Mayorkas, um, you, you know, Chairman. I think any unbiased uh, person Mayorkas, would say that the Biden administration's border for and immigration policy responding uh, to the letter, the bipartisan letter that I sent with Senator Scott requesting reforms to FEMA disaster relief practices that were discriminatory against black Americans, especially in the South. Grateful to you and your team for making those reforms. Would like to ask you, please, uh, how would you characterize the specific mission of the Office of Intelligence and Analysis, and what differentiates it from the other 17 component agencies in the intelligence community? So if I can, it, um, it dovetails with the question uh, that Senator Romney asked. I think we're cooperating and are, are more cohesive now than we ever have been uh, before. And I think that to the extent that we sometimes um, uh, have redundancies, those are intentional redundancies uh, for a belt and suspenders approach 
uh, to our homeland security and our, and our national uh, security. The Office of Intelligence and Analysis is really an office of partnership. What it does is it gathers in information and intelligence from across the threat landscape. And uh, what it is uh, uniquely situated to do uh, is to push that information and intelligence out to our state, local, tribal, and territorial partners so that the first responder community is equipped and empowered to address the threat in its communities. One of the things that the Office of Intelligence and Analysis has become so much better at over the past nine months is, in fact, working with the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the Joint Terror, uh, Terrorism Terrorist, the Joint Terrorist Task Force model, and we partner in the dissemination of information bulletins, conference calls, and the like with local law enforcement. Thank you, Director Abizade. Uh, how would you rate the quality of information sharing across the IC's 18 component agencies? Well, I actually think it's very strong, especially when you're talking about counterterrorism intelligence. Um, you know, I think the the shift from in the post 9/11 environment was a shift to a need to share uh, sort of mentality across uh, the intelligence community, but also um, our state and local partners, our lead federal agencies in the homeland, the FBI and, and DHS as well. So I've been um, very impressed as I've come back in to lead the center with the degree to, of information sharing that happens across the intelligence community in classified channels. But I've also been very impressed with by the degree to which we work to downgrade as much information as possible and engage directly with state, local, tribal, and territorial elements to make sure that um, we're getting the threat information to the right individuals so they're enabled to take action where they need to. Thank you, Director Abizade. Director Ray, we spoke March 2nd in the Judiciary Committee uh, about the extent of violence in communities across the country, the alarming increase in violent crime, particularly from 2019 to 2020, also from 2020 until this year. Uh, City of Atlanta, 113 homicides this year. That's a 16% increase from last year, a 64% increase from 2019. Georgians are deeply concerned by uh, the intensity of violence in our communities. When we spoke in March, uh, you said you were going to work to refine your assessments of the factors driving this increase in violent crime and violence across the United States. What are your conclusions? So I, I do think uh, as much as it's a phenomenon in, in our home state uh, of Georgia, it is also uh, in other parts of the country as well. And while there might be variations from city to city, I think there's a, a number of factors that contribute to it. I think the, the impact of COVID cannot be uh, underestimated, whether it's trial backlogs, early inmate releases, unemployment, et cetera. You have more juveniles committing violent crime. Uh, you have certain prosecution practices and decreased sentences, which put recidivists back out on the street more readily, uh, and that adds to its challenge. You also have the prevalence uh, of firearms, including interstate trafficking. Um, by that, I mean firearms in the hands of those who are prohibited, legally prohibited from, from having them. So all those factors together create a combustible mix. I would add into that, uh, a number of police departments are close partners that we work with every day who have an incredibly challenging job, uh, are experiencing recruiting challenges and attrition uh, that is in uh, early retirement. Uh, and that, in turn, uh, adds to it. So you put 
no one factor by itself, but you put all those things together, and, and that's part of why you're seeing, I think, the increase in homicides. You're also seeing increases in carjackings uh, and other violent crimes, not just in Atlanta, not just in Georgia, but in cities all over the country. Uh, and it's something that uh, I suspect every member of this committee hears about from its constituents with increasing frequency for good reason. Secretary Mayorkas, um, uh, could you provide us with an update on the new Center for the Prevention Programs and Partnerships, or as uh, you're calling it, CP3, which prevents, uh, helps prevent individuals from radicalizing into domestic violent extremism and uh, interferes when individuals, unfortunately, do so? Thank you very much, Senator. Uh, that, um, that office, that Center for Prevention Programs and Partnership, is really executing a different strategy uh, than what has previously uh, been undertaken. Uh, what we are doing is focused on disseminating information to local communities and empowering and, and equipping them uh, to address um, the reasons why uh, people are driven to uh, extreme ideologies and perhaps uh, even acts of violence. And we are distributing uh, grant funds as well as information. It's all about empowering and equipping communities uh, to address a situation from the ground up. Well, nobody knows their own community better than those that work within it. Thank you. Uh, Director Ray, I want to direct this next question to you. I understand the FBI Counterterrorism Division maintains a section to specifically investigate, of course, domestic terrorism. Are you collecting data specifically on the threat from white supremacists? And secondly, as part of the national strategy for countering domestic terrorism, how does the FBI plan to enhance collaborative reporting, that data collection that we need and we can collaborate targeting our efforts with law enforcement partners to prevent uh, radicalization and attacks? Uh, so uh, we, we do collect uh, information uh, very much about, uh, I think the category that you're describing, we put in the category of racially and ethnically motivated violent extremism, uh, of which the biggest chunk by far uh, is racial or ethnic motivation uh, favoring white supremacy. Mm -hmm. um, and so we collect information about that threat. Uh, we have, as you say, prioritized that threat at a national threat priority level. Uh, it, we have created a domestic terrorism hate crimes fusion cell uh, to bring to bear not just the domestic terrorism expertise but the hate crimes expertise because often there's some overlap uh, in the criminal activity and in more importantly the insights that that gives us to look ahead mm -hmm. and around the, around the bend, if you will. Um, and one of the places where that uh, kind of collaboration and synergy is already uh, showing uh, great progress is is in your home state the the attempted attack on a synagogue that we were able to for the first time prevent using hate crimes charges uh, and we hope to do more of that I think the big part of the engagement to collaborate on data is going to be through the joint terrorism task forces which of course are all over the country of which there are over 200 uh, and that includes federal state local participants probably about 4,500 or so bodies all working on those task forces together uh, uh, able to share classified information mm -hmm. investigative information and to ensure that we're then able to generate uh, bulletins and things like that working collaboratively with Secretary Mayorkas's shop uh, in doing so. And I'm going to move into cybersecurity, but before I do that, do you have the workforce you need? And what are the challenges you have? I guess I could probably address this in every area. Um, 
hiring, uh, training, and retaining workforce? Well, I would say that a couple things on that. Certainly, uh, uh, the domestic terrorism caseload has exploded. Uh, and meanwhile, the international terrorism caseload hasn't subsided. And that's just within terrorism. So we absolutely need more resources there. Uh, and any resources Congress sees fit to send our way, I can assure you they would be quickly put to good use. On the, uh, uh, there is a piece of good news, which is that at the FBI, the last couple of years, our recruiting numbers have gone uh, exorbitantly up, uh, contrary to the trend you would see more generally in the country. So we tripled the number of people applying to be special agents to the FBI in 19, 20, and 21 compared to what it was before that highest it's been in about a decade. Uh, we are not having uh, too many retirements. Our attrition rate is now down to under 1%, which is, I would say, pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but but the, the counterbalancing against that is the unbelievable challenge of all these threats that we're dealing with. And there's a lot of people with great ideas and good ideas about what we should be doing more of. I haven't found anybody with much in the way of good ideas about what it is we can suddenly do less of. Thank you. I want to just move quickly, uh, and I know I'll probably have to take this answer off the record, but cybersecurity resilience, because uh, uh, the cyber, uh, so, uh, Cyberspace Solarium Commission said the U.S. government still lacks rigorous, codified, and routinely exercised processes for identifying, assessing, and prioritizing critical infrastructure risks across the federal government between public and private sectors. So, Secretary Mayorkas, what infrastructure sectors um, do you think, uh, do you view as particularly vulnerable that we should be putting some resources um, into right now? So we, um, Senator, thank you so much for your question. We're very focused on the critical infrastructure sectors. As a matter of fact, I think one of the, uh, the great moves that we made uh, following the Colonial Pipeline uh, cyber attack that really galvanized the public attention was for TSA to issue two um, sequential um, security directives mm -hmm. after engaging with the pipeline industry uh, to uh, develop uh, standards of behavior to increase the cybersecurity uh, of that sector. I think the joint cyber um, uh, collaborative uh, that we are employing through CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, is a very significant step in strengthening critical infrastructure because it's a public-private uh, partnership. It's not just all of government, but it's all. Thank you. My next question is for Director Ray. The pseudonymity afforded to criminal organizations such as DarkSide that demands ransom payments in cryptocurrency provides significant challenges to federal law enforcement. How has the FBI changed its response capacity at its field offices to help families, small businesses, and managers of critical infrastructure respond to the rise in ransomware attacks? Uh, so I appreciate the question. Certainly ransomware attacks, uh, as Secretary Mayorkas referred to earlier, uh, have, have gone up and the total volume of payments have gone up, both quite significantly. And it affects, as you say, Senator, not just large organizations, uh, but also small ones. Um, and what the FBI can do and is doing is we have cyber task forces uh, in all 56 field offices. Uh, and each of them is designed in part to be able to engage quickly with victims um, to be able to respond uh, as quickly as possible to help them uh, manage uh, and disrupt and mitigate against the threat. Uh, we, on the virtual currency side, the cryptocurrency side, uh, we have created 
uh, subject matter teams, experts uh, at headquarters that both train, so create more of a force multiplier effect in all the field offices, but also support investigations because, as you say, following the money in that space is exceptionally challenging and requires new and more creative, innovative tactics, uh, much as we did, for example, in the Colonial Pipeline case where we were able to uh, not only follow but seize uh, a big chunk of the ransom that was being paid in cryptocurrency before it got to the bad actors. And we want to do more of that, but that case illustrates in particular the importance of the private sector, big or small, engaging with the FBI as quickly as possible. Speed really matters in these instances, and when they do uh, engage that quickly, there's all kinds of things that we can potentially do uh, to, to follow the money. And uh, Director Ray, uh, I know ransom payment information is of importance to the FBI. Could you tell the committee how important that is and, and how this legislation will help you? Uh, absolutely. I think the key will be to make sure that the information uh, reaches uh, the FBI real time because, as I testified in response to one of the earlier questions, speed, hours matter in this particular arena. Uh, getting the information from the private sector on a more consistent and timely basis will be critical for, for us at the FBI as well for, I think, five reasons. One, it allows us to better understand the full extent uh, of the threat uh, of particular intrusion sets nationwide. Second, it enhances our ability to warn about trends, tactics, techniques, procedures in a much more meaningful way. Uh, third, it allows us to uh, provide support for a greater number of victims and collect more evidence and therefore bring more cases. Uh, fourth, it allows us to help uh, collect, uh, connect seemingly unrelated incidents into uh, attribution to a single actor, which is incredibly value in its, in its own right to ensure that we're holding them accountable for the full extent of their activity. But then last but not least, it allows us to follow the money uh, and in many cases seize it. Uh, and I can't underscore enough how important that is. Our strategy is to go after the actors, their infrastructure and their money, and, and legislation like this would help us do that uh, as long as we get the information, you know, real time. Thank you. On, on March uh, 2021... Um, I have a, a question for the Secretary, Secretary Mayorkas and Director Ray, initially. And the question is, uh, Mr. Secretary, in your testimony, uh, you discuss how China represents a threat to uh, U.S. economic competitiveness. Uh, Senator Portman, I spent a fair amount of time as the leads on the Senate uh, uh, Subcommittee on, uh, on Investigations, and we uh, agree with that fully. Uh, in past years, uh, Director Ray has stated that the Bureau views uh, China as one of the greatest threats to our nation due to their counterintelligence and economic espionage interests as it relates to targeting economic assets and seeking information related to our intellectual property. As we pivot to our national security posture to address near-peer adversaries as opposed to traditional threats and actors, could uh, each of you, uh, Mr. Secretary and, Ms. and Director uh, Ray, could each of you speak to how your agencies are working together and separately to combat the threat that China poses to our national interests in overall security. Mr. Secretary. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator Carper. Let me um, identify three uh, different lines of effort uh, that we are executing in response to the threat uh, to our economic and therefore national security that China poses. Number one, of course, uh, we have uh, the infringements on uh, and theft of intellectual property, and we're working very closely 
uh, in response to that with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Secondly, um, in the service of uh, human rights on the one hand and a, a fair marketplace, a competitive marketplace on the other, uh, we are stopping uh, the importation of goods that are produced in whole or in part through forced labor. Uh, third, um, uh, we are uh, addressing uh, uh, pure uh, criminal activity, uh, the theft uh, uh, of, um, of uh, uh, property uh, by organizations um, emanating from uh, the PRC. Uh, we are also, of course, uh, addressing the cybersecurity threat uh, that has emanated there and has attacked uh, some of our federal agencies. Okay, thanks. You can hold it right there, if, if, if you will. And uh, let me yield to uh, Director Ray. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Well, thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, as you know, this is something I feel, uh, to use Senator Portman's term, uh, very passionately about. Uh, and I think there is no country that presents a greater threat to our innovation, our economic security, and our democratic ideas than the People's Republic of China, which is why we have over 2,000 active investigations tied back to the PRC government across all 56 field offices. That's an almost 1,300% increase in economic espionage investigations tied to China from about a decade ago. As I said in my opening, we're opening a new investigation that's tied back to China about every 12 hours. And it covers pretty much every sector of the economy and every state uh, in, in the nation. Um, we, one of the things that we stood up uh, now 18 months or so ago, uh, maybe two years ago, was a counterintelligence task force structure modeled after the Joint Terrorism Task Force model that works so well on the terrorism front. Uh, so we have a national counterintelligence task force here in the uh, D.C. area, and then we have counterintelligence task forces in every field office, and those in turn bring on partners uh, from other federal agencies, in some cases even state and local agencies, and so that's a big part of our effort. The other thing I would say is it's not just investigations. We just The reality is we are not going to be able to investigate our way out of this threat. And so a big part of our field office's work together with our partners, uh, I've talked a lot, for example, Secretary Mayorkas, about critical infrastructure and, and that piece of it, uh, is trying to get out to the private sector, out to the academic sector, and try to help them understand the threat better so that they better harden themselves against the threat. So those are some of the things. It to you. How many people are in that process right now? Do you know what the size of that pilot is? Uh, I do not, uh, Senator. We'll get that to you. But these are all recent crossers that are getting this, correct? Yes, yes, they are. So I would assume they would all follow under that priority of if they're a recent crosser and they're not checking in, then they would fall underneath that priority of we need to go scoop them up and find out why they're not checking in. Uh, individuals who do not uh, fulfill their responsibilities to appear and report are considered a, um, a border security enforcement priority. Okay, and that, that goes back to one of my questions before about just trying to get a good ballpark figure of how many people that fit into that priority group are actually having enforcement on them currently. Uh, I understand there's a new process on prosecutorial discretion uh, that's being used uh, by some of the uh, attorneys to actually go before the court. Once folks have actually been obtained and going before the court, uh, then attorneys for DHS and ICE are coming and saying, allow us prosecutorial discretion to be able to release this individual. Is that a new process or is that something that's ongoing? Uh, a prosecutorial discretion is something that has been... That's around for a long time. I'm just talking about actually going to the court and requesting it. I, I believe that has been uh, longstanding. Okay. 
We'll follow up and get additional details on this because it's my understanding there's been uh, received some recent information about 6,234 cases that have been dismissed and then the process of those cases there once they're actually in the process and some of them included some folks with a criminal record as well. And we, uh, we're just trying to get additional information. Uh, I look forward to providing that to you. I know that um, uh, the Office of Legal Counsel within uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement has promulgated uh, new guidelines uh, for its attorneys. And um, if you don't have those guidelines, we'd be pleased to share them. With That'd be helpful. This goes back to the ICE guidelines before on detention that we're trying to get clarity on it that we had talked about that needed by August. You had said I would have it by August, don't have it. What are we doing on enforcement in, inside of the country? What are we doing on prosecutorial uh, enforcement? This goes back to the deterrence issues. If individuals are able to get into the country and they don't have any consequences on them, they'll continue to be able to come, whether they come across the border with a child so they can work their way through, or whether they'll find other avenues to be able to get in. If there's not enforcement, it'll continue to accelerate. So thank you. Thank you, Karen, uh, Senator. Thank you, Senator Langford. Senator Rosen, you're uh, recognized for your questions. Uh, thank you, Chairman Peters. Appreciate the second round. Appreciate our witnesses uh, uh, staying around. It's really important. And I actually want to build on uh, uh, Chairman Peters, some of his earlier questioning uh, on uh, our digital spaces, our online, and, and we know that digital spaces are just fueling the rise in domestic terrorism. You know, ex extremists, they try to exploit the internet to recruit, to franchise, and of course, unfortunately, to plot attacks. So Secretary Mayorkas and Director Ray, to both of you, how can Congress better empower federal law enforcement officials to combat online hate before it escalates into this any real world violence. How do you work with the digital platforms and what kind of support can we provide you with, whether it's through this committee or other committees of jurisdiction, um, to, to help you do this job? Secretary Mayorkas, uh, you can go first. Um, I'd like to uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator Rosen. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard uh, uh, Director Ray uh, speak very compellingly about two forces uh, on the domestic la landscape that are really converging uh, to create the increase uh, that we have observed over the last few years. Number one is the fact that we're speaking very often of lone actors or loosely affiliated uh, groups of individuals, not the traditional organized structures, number one. And number two, as he, as he referenced earlier in this hearing, uh, the fact that social media um, as a terrain that can so easily uh, propagate um, misinformation, false information, and allow communications uh, to occur uh, 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 among loosely affiliated individuals. I'd like to give some thought uh, to and speak with um, uh, our partners, Director Ray, um, Director Abizad, with respect to uh, what legislation might be useful uh, in this space. But we are are working together in an all-of-government effort to increase uh, to to address this increased threat. Thank you. I appreciate that because I want to give you the tools you really need to uh, protect us, um, and that's terrific. Director Ray, uh, do you have some additional information you'd like to add uh, about how we can, how you think we might help you uh, in this space? Well, uh, without uh, weighing in on a specific legislative proposal, what I would say, and I've spoken about this uh, many times, uh, I can't overstate the impact of default encryption uh, and the role it's playing, in, including on uh, in terrorism. And what I mean by that is more and more the information that's going to allow us to 
as I said to, I think, Chairman Peters earlier uh, in an exchange, separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of social media, um, is being able to, with lawful process, that is appropriate court warrants, get access to those communications where the, the most uh, meaningful discussion mm -hmm. of the violence is occurring. Uh, and more and more, technology is moving in a direction where no matter how bulletproof the affidavit in support of the warrant, no matter how ironclad the judicial, independent judicial approval, and no matter how horrific the criminal activity that's being investigated, we will be blind to it. And I think that is something that is worthy of Congress's attention. Before, uh, before uh, Ranking Member Portman and I uh, make some uh, brief uh, closing remarks, uh, Secretary Marcus, I think uh, I'd like to ask you about some, some very concerning images uh, that were released uh, yesterday that appeared to show uh, Border Patrol agents uh, appear, uh, whipping uh, Haitian uh, migrants. Uh, these acts uh, certainly are intolerable uh, and a complete diversion uh, from uh, your agency's mission. And my question to you is, can you explain to the committee what you'll be doing to address uh, what uh, Americans saw in the, when uh, uh, looking at those images? I'm, I'm very pleased you asked that question. It has been uppermost in my mind since I first saw uh, the images uh, late yesterday. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, we commenced an investigation at my direction immediately. The Office of Professional Responsibility within the Department of Homeland Security's U.S. Customs and Border Protection, number one. Number two, we alerted the Inspector General uh, of the incidents. Number three, I directed that the Office of Professional Responsibility be present on site in Del Rio 24-7 to ensure that the conduct of our personnel adheres to our policy to, uh, to our policies, to our training, and to our values. I was horrified to see the images, and we look forward to learning the facts that are adduced from the investigation, and we will take actions that those facts compel. Uh, we do not tolerate any mistreatment or abuse of a migrant, period. I also want to say, and I think it's very important to say, that I saw two other uh, powerful things yesterday when I was there under the bridge in Del Rio. Number one, I saw the acute vulnerability of the Haitian uh, population, the predominantly Haitian population, and I cannot overstate how difficult that is uh, to see we are speaking about vulnerable uh, individuals in um, uh, tragic circumstances. I also saw the extraordinary work of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, not only the United States Border Patrol, but its Office of Field Operations, as well as other agencies within the Department of Homeland Security that have been surged to Del Rio to address the situation in partnership with state and local law enforcement personnel, as well as the forces in civil society. We saw the American Red Cross. We saw World Central Kitchen providing food and supplies to these individuals. It's an all of government and all of local society effort there. And I want to say uh, that uh, the actions that we saw, the images that we saw, do not speak of the incredible uh, men and women of U.S. Customs and Border Protection or of the Department of Homeland Security as an institution.
Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us and you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.